Hi, uh, welcome to the Brook. Honored that we can gather together uh, in this way for this moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the book of Psalms. Psalm 72 is where we're going to be for the duration of our time together today. If you are using the Bible app, awesome. If you aren't using the Bible app but you want to, go ahead and download that. And in the event portion of the app, you'll see the Brook Miami. And it contains all the passages that we're looking at, as well as all of the notes that we can follow along together. Also, the words will be on the screen so that we can track through the text in our time together. Now, we just exited a month-long fast as a church, a fast that many people participated in. Now, not everybody fasted in the same way, but we all had the same aim. God, would you disrupt our routine and would you draw us closer in to your heart? God's been kind. I mean, I've heard stories of what God has been doing, how he's refreshed us, and how he's been whispering certain things into our hearts through his word. We thought it appropriate uh, to just use this time to just kind of share uh, some of those thoughts that God has been whispering to my heart. Honestly, it feels like I've been screaming in my heart through his word as well. And I can think of no better place than to look at Psalm 72 in truth. Psalm 72 is kind of a synopsis of what I've just been sensing from the Lord and what he's been screaming into my heart. And it actually serves as a springboard into the next series and what we're going to be looking at and exploring over the next four weeks as a church, the weight of glory, the glory of God, to be so preoccupied by the weight and beauty of who God is that it drives into our hearts several different ideas. One being that the future in front of us is greater than the past behind us. Oh, I can't wait for us to get there. Another is because God is so beautiful and great and vast and he is who he says he is that we can take risk for God with the only assurance from God being he's with his people. Now I'm looking forward to this upcoming series, but I am looking forward to today as well, walking through the dynamics of Psalm 72. Now, have you ever watched a movie and you're like, oh, this movie was so amazing. It just spoke to you in such a, a deep way. And so you wanted your friends to experience it. And so much so you would even go and watch the movie over again with them. That's why some of you have seen Avengers 25 times. Endgame, that is. Both are good. Endgame is better. You know? And so, so you're in the theater and you're, you're watching the movie and you, you, you catch yourself like looking to the left or looking to the right to see if they're enjoying the particular parts of the movie that you were enjoying as well. And when they do, you're like, ah, yeah, there's like this internal sense of pride. Um, and when they don't, you're like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's, that's how I feel with this text. There's just so much here, guys. There's just so much here. And I, I want us to enjoy all the stuff that's here and all the ways that God has really just been speaking to me through this text. But what I'm confident of is that whether or not I do this justice, it is the strength of God and God's strength alone that will bring us into the life that this text offers. When we look at this text, there's really three key brackets that we see. We see a worthy king 
we see a worthwhile kingdom, and then we see this world-filling glory, this beautiful and poetic, staggering song has a worthy king, a worthwhile kingdom, and this world-filling glory. And as we walk through the text, that's what's going to shape our time, this worthy king, worthwhile kingdom, and world-filling glory before closing with ways that this text is speaking to me uh, specifically. So let's read it straight through and then take it bit by bit. There's so much here. Uh, like I said, it's just beautiful, staggering poetry. Read with me. The Psalm 72, starting in verse 1, it reads like this. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your, your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like the rain that falls on the moon grass like showers that water the earth in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more may he have dominion from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no help. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May they be a Abundance of grain in the land, and on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in their cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure and his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be the glorious, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. <laughs> it's big. <laughs> It's big. Can I just lay a challenge for us um, on the outset that we would read Psalm 72 
once a day, every day until Easter, to just sit and soak in this, that we would read Psalm 72 once a day, every day until Easter. It's about a month. It's engulfing. Um, Charles Spurgeon, often seen as a prince of pre preachers, he says about this psalm, he says that because of this psalm, we have no cause to fear, but abundant reasons to sing. He's right. The psalm is majestic. It's remarkable. It's this rich and layered poetry and prophecy and praise. There's two ways that you could read this psalm. You could read this psalm as a prayerful plea for an earthly king. Or you could read it as that and as this prophetic picture of an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. Now, I read it primarily the second way, and I would invite you to read it that way as well. The reason being is because we have the privilege of hindsight. We see this song and we get to take into account God's words to David, where God in 2 Samuel tells David that he is going to establish through his house an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. We have the privilege of seeing this through the lens of the life of Jesus and how the life of Jesus and the proclamations he makes regarding himself as king and regarding the coming kingdom really embody what we just read. So I'm going to invite us to primarily read this through a prophetic picture pointing to an everlasting king. Nevertheless, we do get to see within this psalm a worthy king, a worthwhile kingdom, and this world-filling glory. Start with the worthy king. Notice the affirmations regarding him. Notice the ways people are offering up prayers for him. Notice the scope of his reign and his rule and how it is causing this level of obedience and glad submission. The greatness of what we bear witness to regarding how people are interacting with this king should cause us to say, who is worthy of that? Like it begs the question of worthiness. What makes anyone worthy of that type of affirmation and ascribing of praise? Now, if we go deeper, we see that the worthiness of this king is composed about from his actions and his attributes. Now take his actions. He rules with justice and righteousness. His guiding ethic is righteousness and justice. This is verse 2. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he judge them with righteousness to do what is true, noble, and good, righteousness. May he judge people, may he live, govern, and be guided by justice to give people what they're due regarding protection punishment, or care. Justice and righteousness as his guiding, governing ethic. 
Now embedded in that ethic is another idea or virtue that may not be as noticeable to us, but a Hebrew reader would immediately see it. And so when we read this, we should immediately take into account Proverbs chapter 2, specifically verse 9. So in Proverbs chapter 2, the author of, of this Proverbs is talking about they pursue wisdom, gain wisdom. And in Proverbs 2, verse 9, what we see is to lead with justice and righteousness is the result of gaining wisdom, meaning embedded in this ethic is this idea of wisdom, timely, true instruction that allows you to do that which is right, that which is true, that which is noble, that which is good. In other words, what makes this King worthy is his actions are rooted actually not in himself, but in the ways of God. We know this because justice, righteousness, and wisdom are rooted in who God is. So we read this psalm, and immediately we should also think of Psalm 89. Psalm 89, God speaking about his throne, where he rules from, and he says the foundation of his throne is justice and righteousness. This king is worthy because he is not leading or living based on his own wisdom and ideas. God is guiding him with justice, righteousness, and wisdom, and the people are being blessed by it. There's more here, though. Notice his actions. He's a conqueror. So, here's what he says. Verse 4, you crush the oppressor. He's a conqueror. You get this other um, statement where he talks about the desert people in verse 9, made the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Lick the dust is a euphemism of people who wanted to triumph over him actually being conquered. So he's a conqueror. But what's fascinating is when we see his conquering in this passage, it immediately moves us to his attributes. Not only are his actions that of conquering, but the attribute that is driving the conquering is the good of other people. He's compassionate. You can't read this and not just and not see how compassion is driving his action. That is verse 4, but it's also verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, and the poor. And him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Do we see this? What makes this a worthy king is that he is just, righteous, wise, conquering with a tender heart. Now, there's a couple of thoughts that immediately jump into my mind when I see this picture of a worthy king. The first is even looking at the conquering element. It's fascinating and intriguing. It's actually very inviting as well when we think about how he conquers. Not just who he's conquering, but how he conquers. We see this kingdom that is expanding. The, the nation are blessing him. There's this pivot towards a global praise, praise that moves beyond his own 
people. That is verse 11. May all the kings fall down before him and all the nations serve him. But this pivot towards global praise, be it conquered, is not because he's steamrolling other kingdoms. He's not steamrolling other kings. What's attached to this pivot is the verses we just read, 12 through 14. He is conquering through compassion and love. This king's rule and reign is expanding through, expanding through love that conquers and tender compassion. Please just marinate on that for a while. Let our minds and our hearts run wild with that. Conquering through compassion. Progress, not through power. We'll try to seize it, but through stewarding power for the sake of those who are often abused by the powerful. Man, he's worthy. There's another thought that just, just grabs me. So what constantly runs through my mind is this idea of hero theology. So hero theology, let me cut up pause there. No problem. Yep. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey or wherever we are on the spiritual map, we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't say that we desire this type of worthiness from those with power. We'd also be lying to ourselves if we didn't admit that in the residue of our hearts, there's this nagging sentiment and even this instinct to believe that type of person simply doesn't exist, right? So what runs through my mind is uh, this concept of hero theology. And so what hero theology means is that the way that we think, talk, or even envision heroes to be is a window into the heart of humanity and the value system of a given culture at a particular moment. That's hero theology. Now, if we just trace human history, what we see is that as we're constructing these heroes, uh, or as we're heroizing people, there's usually this larger than life image and picture that we begin with, but then we start to build into them like flaws and defects, really, because we want our humanity to still stand among greatness. And so you take early mythology and then you have Achilles Hill, heel, right? And so it's, it's, it's a window into the heart of humanity and where we are given our current cultural moment and the various value systems. So even think about where we are now. And we have Generation X and uh, my generation of millennials to blame for it, but we're in the age of the anti-hero, right? We want our heroes to exist in the gray, but lean towards the light. Wolverine, Batman, die and be a hero, or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Qui-Gon Jinn, that's for my Star Wars people. The Mandalorian, you name it. Now part of that is because there's this cloud of suspicion that just kind of hovers over this generation. And what's often true of us is this 
move towards moral relativism and ambiguity regarding truth. So the gray is very appealing. Nevertheless, when we look at heroes, there is this nagging sense in our hearts that there's always going to be something deficient with them. We want our heroes with pronounced faults. So even when we see this passage, we're like, who is actually worthy of that? That's good, but that seems a little naive. Who can shoulder this weight without collapsing and wear this crown without failing? And this is why I believe this is utterly prophetic because this points to Jesus, the only one with any shred of integrity who can shoulder this weight without failing and wear this crown beautifully. Christ, who among us is worthy? Let's follow the scriptures because they're not bashful about what's going on in our hearts and the heart of humanity. And that the question of worthiness is so pervasive throughout the scriptures. So you even get to Revelation, right? And John is having this revelation, this vision. He's caught up into the heavens, and there's this one scene with this scroll with, with seven seals on it, and nobody can open it. Nobody can open it. And no one in heaven, no one on earth is worthy to open it, and it breaks John's heart. And as he begins to weep, this elder interrupts him and says, weep no more. There's someone who is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered and he can open the scroll and break the seals. He's worthy. And how did he conquer? His blood, compassion, peace. This is why it's utterly prophetic for me. Because, yes, absolutely, this is a standard that every single leader everywhere must measure up to if they want to lead well. Justice, righteousness, wisdom, compassion, and the force to keep going through difficulty, to have a conquering spirit about the warrior, if you will. But even if that's the standard everybody should measure up to, there's only one person who can measure up to that standard fully, Christ, who in his life, he was perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfect wisdom, warrior, king, with a compassionate tenderness, conquering through cross. And where Jesus reigns in power like this, people respond in the same way, glad, humble, courageous obedience to a worthy king. So much here, but let's move on. Next, this worthwhile kingdom. The dynamics of this worthwhile kingdom are painted everywhere. I mean, just look at this. Verse, verse three, the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills in righteous, righteousness. I mean, verse 16, may, may there be abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field, there's this comprehensive experience of blessing and good. This is a picture of what the scriptures identify as human flourishing. A life of collective, a life of collective good because of the grace of God, human flourishing. 
That's what we see here. Now, some of the dynamics, similarly with the word Ikeen, are very inviting and intriguing. They're worth investigation. In fact, they're fascinating. Think, think about this. Notice the reversal of cultural power. Right? So, so cultural power or power in a culture tends to flow away from the have-nots and the least likely, the less than, the forgotten, the vulnerable within a given society. They don't really have a seat at the table. They aren't the ones who are shaping the ethics of a given society. It's the ones who are the haves. It's the ones with the power. It's those people, the most likely. Yet what we see here is, is a reversal of that. It's a reversal of the flow of cultural power that within this kingdom, the people that are being considered, the people that are shaping the ethos, if you will, of the kingdom are vulnerable within the kingdom. This is, again, this is verses 12 through 14. The needy, the poor, those who would trend towards being abused, what is said is they're cared for because of the ethics of the king and how that's reflected in the society that he's building in what he says of them is their blood is precious in his sight. You know how staggering that is? When we think about precious blood, we think about royalty. We're like, because you're of good stock and noble birth, like you have greater privileges and greater access to certain things because your blood is precious. And he says, their blood is precious. The blood of of the vulnerable and the forgotten, the have-nots is just as precious as those who have and those we remember easily. It's a reversal of cultural power. There's another dynamic here that's just, think about the scope of the generosity that's experienced here. They're not hoarding blessing, they're sharing it. So he says, the desert peoples, all nations, the great river. So you're talking about from Arabia to Africa, everybody should experience the blessing and greatness of this kingdom. That is not surprising when you look at just the trajectory of the scriptures. This is God from the beginning when he gives a cultural mandate in the Garden of Eden, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, Adam, Eve, bring Eden everywhere. That's the cultural mandate. That the world will be blessed and experience what you are experiencing in Eden, this comprehensive blessing with me at its center. This is God commissioning and, and just speaking blessing on Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to take you, Abraham, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, the entire globe will be blessed that you are going to receive this unique and powerful experience of blessing so that others can experience it as well. Why are you blessed? Why do you even want blessing? Why does God bless if not so that others can flourish through our good? Such a powerful picture of a worthwhile kingdom. Now, there's another thing here. Similarly, again, with a worthy king, there may be, and 
understandably, this nagging sentiment and even this instinct to say, yeah, that sounds good, but that sounds unrealistic. That place that's pictured here does not exist. And I think that there's a lot of help that we could have from a man like us by the name of C.S. Lewis, author, theologian. He wrote this book, Mere Christianity. And there's a quote that um, I think is powerful that some of us may be familiar with, but um, man, we should all come to terms with its truth. It reads like this. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. <laughs> a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men or women feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to wake a mob, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. A longing for an ideal person like a worthwhile king, a longing for an ideal place like this worthwhile kingdom is God's gift to humanity to remind us that there's so much more to us and the world around us. Oh, that we would not settle for less. There's this worthwhile kingdom and this worthy king that we just get to see. But what's at the center of all of this, we cannot miss it. It screams at us, we cannot miss it. What's at the center of all of this is a world filling glory. Read, read with me, verse 18 through 19, he's like this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. What's at the center of these pictures that we see? What's at the center of what causes these pictures is a glorious God doing wondrous things. What's at the center and the cause of all of this is the greatness of God, which the scriptures shorthand as glory. God's greatness. The expansive scope of his weight, his beauty, his attributes, and his actions. So in Exodus 34, there's this scene where, where Moses is like, man, God, I want to see you. You got to show me who you are. Show me your glory. That's his request. And God's response, first of all, is supremely kind. But what is fascinating 
is a way that he shows him his glory. Read with me, Exodus 34, um, starting verse five, it reads this, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That looks a lot like the king that we saw, who was worthy. That looks a lot like what is present in the kingdom, this mercy and this compassion. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That looks like justice and righteousness, that God doesn't turn a blind eye to that which is broken or wrong. He deals with it head on. And then we get verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. That looks like the response of these people when they're experiencing the greatness of this worthy king and their life in this worthwhile kingdom. It's worship to say someone is worthy of it all from me. Think about this phrase, this verse, may the whole earth be filled with his Glory, declaration and request. Declaration, may it be so. This should come to pass. Request, the psalmist is, is offering this up as a prayer to God. God, would you bring this to bear? Would you make this happen because it's worth it? And the filling of the world, the glory of God, means an experience of good for all people. God is recognized for who he is and people are able to experience the greatness of who he is and delight in who he is. It's an experience of good. It's flourishing. Now, embedded in that are some simple questions, which is like, well, how and who? Who's going who's gonna to fill the earth? And if we, we really just, again, just think about what we read. God through his people, God through his people, is he's filling the earth with his glory through his People, And that's reflective of just a larger truth and understanding that God is after human flourishing, but he wants to partner with people to accomplish it. Which begs the question, if God wants to partner with humans to accomplish this work, will we say yes? Will we say yes? Yes, I'm in. I'm, I'm in on accomplishing this great and glorious work. And if we say yes, then realize the starting point isn't actually activity, it's identity, it's receiving him as a father who is after good and wants something for you, not just something from you, wants good for you. Now, that actually moves to just even a second question that I feel like just from this passage is, I can't, honestly, I just can't even see this without seeing the church. Like this work of human agents in partnership with God producing, like flourishing for all people. I can't see this passage without seeing the church. One, because of just the mountain language that's everywhere and Eastern eyes would see mountains and they would see them not necessarily like we think of 
Everest, but we think about high hills whereby people would herald good news, pronouncements of blessing or even caution. And we get this in Matthew chapter five, when Jesus speaking to the church about the church, he says that you're a city on a hill. You're sitting on a hill proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, which means in my mind, through the scriptures, what we're left with is God's primary vehicle for this isn't individual partners. It's actually collective people as a church, which begs the question, if God's primary vehicle for this picture being experienced is the church, will you find a church that you could call home? And if we personalize that, Will you say yes to the brook being in your home, to be known by others, to be all in, to engage with your whole heart and live to this end? What this scripture is doing to me is just reigniting like my heart to just say, we can't settle for anything less than what we see here. <laughs> And it's reigniting just this desire and passion in my bones to see a faith community in every community across South Florida, where we have a vehicle where people are able to, to do this within a given community, a faith community in every community all across South Florida, where we are experiencing the greatness of God. We're in countering him and we are growing as a people from all people passionate for God. This text is just to me. And I just hope that it would do the same for you as we embark on this journey over the next few weeks to just sit and soak in the glory and greatness of God and what it means to desire for the whole earth to be filled with it and why the starting point is examining our lives and see how God is filling our very lives with his glory, with his greatness. Just want to reiterate the challenge, man. Every single day, once a day, every day, now until Easter, I just sit in the song and see what God does. There may not be no jewels in your crown. <laughs> Nobody's going to track you. Bursting, if you just allow this to soak deep into your soul. Today, let's pray. God, uh, I love Psalms of the Two. Just is so enriching, so enriching. It's engulfing, it's inviting. When we sit in it, be stirred by it, and transformed. Yeah, in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.